What wondrous hymns we have sung in our service. The first by Augustus Toplity, this written by Joseph Hart. Sound, sound theology. We are singing to the Lord, singing also to one another, and teaching our children. Now we continue in our series in Matthew's Gospel and come to the ninth chapter and read verses 9 through 17. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. But before we read God's own word, let's bow briefly in prayer. O great and sovereign God, you have given to us this word by divine inspiration. We know that the world around us cares nothing for your word, but we do, not because of anything innately within us that would make us better, but because by your grace you have sovereignly drawn us to yourself. We cannot deny your word, but only affirm it and find its power within our souls. We ask that the word of God read and proclaimed this day would be used of you to draw us on to glory, to grant perseverance to your people, to bolster us in our faith and joy in the Lord, to give us a deeper reverence for your word, and to make us Christ-centered. We ask also that those in our midst today who are lost and undone, fallen in Adam, who have not yet come to know Jesus, would come to know Christ, and that you would build up your church in knowledge, in the richness of your grace, and in those who come to know you by faith. Bless then, we pray, this word, read and proclaimed, for it is your own word, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Matthew, the ninth chapter, beginning with verse 9. This is the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast." But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." Now, Matthew has been developing for us the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, in his teaching, as we saw in those 30 or so weeks that we spent in the Sermon on the Mount. And then, having come out of the Sermon on the Mount, we see the authority of Jesus in the miracles that he performed, beginning with that great miracle 
of the healing of the leper, which was the equivalent, you might remember, of raising the dead, and then through a number of other miracles until last time, the miracle that we saw took us deeper into our understanding of who Jesus is, which is what Matthew is doing progressively as he writes his gospel. He's bringing his readers to understand who Christ is, that he is the Son of God come into the world to save sinners. And we saw that as Jesus healed the paralytic, that the greater and more important issue in that miracle last time was not the healing, it was the forgiveness of sins. He forgave the paralytic before he healed him. The healing was only was only a seal upon his authority to forgive sins. And so the chief message of the Christian faith is the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus and what he has done on the cross and through his resurrection. There may be important things. There are Christian ethics that need to be unpacked and so forth. But the chief message of the Christian faith, without which the Christian faith would not be the Christian faith, is the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. And now we come from that that forgiveness of the paralytic and the healing of the paralytic to this call of Matthew that we have just read in the passage before us in this ninth chapter of Matthew. And the healing and the forgiveness of sins that we saw last time provide the context for the call that Jesus places upon sinners because those whom he calls in sovereign free grace are those who are forgiven of our sins. Let's get right to the text then, and I want you to see several things. The first of all is the call of grace. The call of grace. Look again at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now this man, Matthew, or Levi as he also is called in other gospels, is a notorious sinner. He's sitting here at a tax booth. He was a publican, which was a a very inexact sort of title for public officials, and especially for public officials that gathered taxes. Nationals actually bought up taxation franchises so that they could levy taxes, and then often would require more than Rome or the local government required, and they would pocket the additional money. Sometimes the wealthy would come to tax gatherers, and they would bribe the tax gatherers so that their own taxation would be lowered, and in this way, not only did the wealthy become more wealthy, but the tax collectors also became very wealthy indeed. Matthew, then, is somewhere in this chain in which graft and theft was simply simply par for the course. And this coming into contact with Gentile employers on the part of a Jew who was a tax collector would make that tax collector ceremonially unclean. You know, we've already seen one reference to tax collectors in Matthew's gospel, and that was back in chapter 5 when the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples to love our enemies. And in verse 46, he said, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And so tax collectors are spoken of by our Lord Jesus in this pejorative way. So here sits Matthew, involved in graft and theft in this whole web of, of, uh, of intrigue. He's sitting at the custom house at Capernaum, collecting taxes from the boats going across the lake outside of Herod's territory, or from those going from Damascus along the coast on the the ancient caravan route, receiving these taxes and perhaps pocketing the money. 
he's generally despised. He is called a sinner by the Pharisees, but we know that he's a sinner in the sight of God and he needs the grace of God. Now, as we see then Matthew, this notorious sinner, sitting there in this way of life that was so incredibly self-centered, Jesus comes by and he calls him to himself. He says to him, follow me. And he rose and followed Jesus. And this call is presented to us in this gospel as a sovereign call. It is effectual. It is irresistible. In line with all of those calls that we see all through redemptive history. I mean, just think through how Abraham is called from Ur of the Chaldees by the sovereignty of God. How Israel is called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son, says the Lord. How individuals such as Moses and Elisha are called or Think of what we've been seeing on Sunday evenings as we look at the book of Galatians and how Paul spoke of his own calling in Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And so Paul says, before I was even born, God had determined that I would belong to him and that he would call me by his grace. Now, the gospel call that you and I receive as believers in Jesus, is the same as the gospel call that was received by Matthew. Now, we know that there is a distinction made in the Bible between the general call and the special call, the general call and the effectual call. The general call is the public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes out to any and to all, those who will believe, those who will not believe, those who are elect, those who are reprobate, those whom God intends to sovereignly bring to himself, and those that he will allow to remain in their sins. This general call goes out to all. But we also know that the scriptures speak, and always in Paul's epistles, always speaks of this special irresistible call of the gospel this very special call. You see, there's the lightning that strikes and that, that uh, brightens the sky, but you cannot see where it may have hit. That's the general call. It brightens the whole sky, but then there's that lightning that actually strikes and it hits a particular object. That is the effectual call, this call that comes right to the center and draws us out of sin into grace, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. I reread recently uh, from a sermon of Charles Spurgeon, different text. He preached a sermon in 1856, and I wanted to refresh my memory on this illustration that he had used because I think it summarizes so beautifully this issue of the effectual call of God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a young man who was about to go off to college, and as he was about to go off, his father was concerned that he would not walk in the ways of his father, in the ways of the gospel that he had been taught. And so he found a very elegant copy of the Bible, and he put it in the bottom of the young man's trunk. And when he got to school and unpacked, he was very irritated to find that his father had placed that Bible there. So he contemplated it for a while, and he tried to determine what he would do with that beautiful copy of God's own word that he had placed in the bottom of his trunk. And he finally decided that he would use it when he was shaving. And so every day he would tear a page out of the Bible as he shaved, and he would wipe his razor on it. But every once in a while, his eye would catch a verse that was a barb to his heart that would remind him of the good news of Jesus and what his father had taught him as he was growing up in his home. Finally, one day, he heard a sermon. I don't know the circumstances, but he heard a sermon that brought home the very passage that he had seen as he was shaving and wiped his razor 
on that page of Holy Scripture, and God brought that truth right to his heart and saved his soul. That is the sovereign free grace of God in the effectual call. His determination that in his own time, in his own way, he will draw his own people unto himself. Now let's ask the question, what are the characteristics of God's call? And let me give you several. First of all, the call of God that is extended to Matthew here and that is extended to the people of God is always a call of grace, always of grace. Matthew did not earn it. We do not earn it. It comes to us altogether because God is a gracious God. It comes to us because of God's predestinating plan. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. It is a call of grace, God's grace that comes to the ill-deserving. It also is a call of power, of almighty, omnipotent power. In Romans 4.17, we read, that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do do not exist. And we see that Paul on the Damascus Road, again, is an example of that almighty power. Here he was, destroying the church of God, hating the people of God, doing all he could to destroy the gospel message, and God sovereignly calls Paul unto himself and changes his heart. As we read in 2 Peter 1.3, of his divine power... He has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so the call is a call of grace. The call is a call of power. And the call also is irresistible. It is effectual. It cannot be resisted when God intends to call a sinner unto himself. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth unto me, shall come unto me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes, he will never cast out, but those who are given to him of the Father from eternity past, those will come unto me, says Jesus. The call is effectual calling. Why did Matthew come? Why do you come? Why did I come? Why did we believe when others did not who heard the same gospel message with the physical ears? What made the difference? God's gracious, powerful, irresistible call. There's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is curious about Jesus, and we find him up there in a sycamore tree. He was a wee little man, you know. The Bible says he was small, and we teach that song, I guess, still to children. I don't know, he's one of my favorite Bible characters, but there he was. (laughs) up in the tree, you know, and he's watching for Jesus. And Jesus, you would think, is looking down here, but no, no. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree, for today I must abide at thy house. And he goes home with him, and the man's heart is so changed by his encounter with Jesus Christ that he gives back fourfold of that which he has stolen from those around him. That is the sovereign call of God. Can you hide from God if he purposes to save you, to call you? Can you hide so that he cannot find you? If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I go up into the heavens, behold, thou art there. It is necessary that those for whom Christ died and shed his blood, purchased, redeemed, for whom he satisfied the righteous anger of God, that he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied that those for whom he died will come to him. A sovereign will of God alone creates us heirs of grace, born in the image of his son, a new created race, says an old hymn writer. But 
Not only is this call that we receive from God gracious, powerful, irresistible, but it also is a call of love, a call of almighty, efficacious love. Matthew could never have dreamt that the Lord would call him a publican, a thief, a robber, if not himself at least involved in a system that was involved in these things, one that was called a sinner by others, one upon whom social stigma was the name of the game, and yet he was a real sinner in the sight of God, far, far from God. And Jesus comes and fixes his eye on Matthew, and he says, follow me. And with no hesitation, he comes and he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. God's power exercised to call us is the power of sovereign, free love. Why would he call me? There was nothing in me that would commend me. There was everything within me that was damnable. Why would he love me when I was a rebel against his truth and against his word? Why would he call me? The only answer is love. Why would he love me? The only answer is love. He loved me because he loved me. He loved you because he loved you. That's why. Who can, who can estimate what this means? It's so grand and so great. That God loved you from eternity past, loved you in the divine call, and will love you all the way into eternity past, people of God. Oh, it's a wondrous thing, this special love that perhaps even at this moment is fixing on someone, that perhaps there is someone here today and you've heard, you've heard the gospel with the ears of the body, but you've never heard the gospel with the ears of the heart, with the affections, with the will, but even now that sovereign irresistible call is coming to you, even now that sovereign love is fixing on you and drawing you out of self and unto Christ Oh, that God would do that even now as his word is preached and as his word is proclaimed. Well, that's the first thing we see in this text. It is the call of grace. But there's something else I want you to see. I want you also to see briefly the fellowship of grace. Moving along in verses 10 and 11, we read, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners. Now this was the Pharisees' language for social outcasts. And of course they were social outcasts, but they also were sinners in the sight of God. Aren't we all? Aren't we all sinners in need of divine grace? And here is Jesus reclining at table, engaging in table fellowship with these social outcasts. Jesus ate with those with whom the Pharisees would not eat, whom the Pharisees regarded as sinners, unacceptable social outcasts. And here we see, I think, an amazing prefigurement. Because the alert reader will remember something that we've already read in the 8th chapter of Matthew. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus saw the faith of the centurion? And he says in verse 11, I tell you, this is chapter 8, verse 11, I tell you, 
Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, there he means the Pharisees primarily, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here we have Jesus fellowshipping not with the Pharisees, but fellowshipping with the social outcasts of his day. Jesus shares a meal with Matthew and his friends, and Old Testament orientation informs the picture. Who is this? It's Jesus, the Messiah. And the Old Testament teems with ideas of divine gifts given in eating and drinking in the Messianic banquet on the world mountain, as we read, for example, in Isaiah 25. Not only there, but Jesus picks up this theme when he eats with sinners in his ministry. Do you recall in Luke 14, 15, in the parable of the great banquet, Jesus said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Do you all know that verse in Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What Matthew intends for us to see in this passage is a manifestation of the one who forgives sinners eating with us, pointing to that day in which we will participate in the messianic banquet, no more deserving than the Pharisees, but accepted and received because of what Jesus has done for us, and it will extend into eternity. Listen about that banquet in Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And in this small way, we see the prefigurement of it here as we see the grace of fellowship. And that fellowship that we will have with him then, he already shares with you, his people, now. The fellowship that we have through the Spirit in his Son, the fellowship that we have in the gospel, the fellowship that we share at the table of the Lord. But then we move on in this text and we see something else about grace. We also see the arguments of grace, the arguments of grace, and we find three of them in verses 11 through 13. Let's read again. And when the Pharisees saw this, that is that he's eating with these social outcasts, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, then. How is it possible that your master eats with these social outcasts? Jesus said you need to learn three things about grace. Here are the arguments of grace. The first argument of grace is the argument of a mortal disease. The well have no need of a physician, but only the sick. The Pharisees did not think that they needed a physician. 
A physician should be where the sick is found, should he not? Where else would you expect me to be? Jesus essentially is saying in this passage, you have a mortal disease. I have come as the divine physician to remove that mortal disease. And Jesus, my friend, is our physician. You know, Jesus is a specialist. We hear a lot about specialists today. You have something that perhaps I can't handle. You need to go to a specialist. We go to a specialist, and sometimes the specialist puzzles over it and says, you know, I need to get another specialist involved. And he helps to diagnose. And perhaps they find the issue, and perhaps they don't. Jesus is not a specialist like that. Jesus is at home with every sickness, with every case. Every one of them is clear to him. He knows exactly the need, he knows exactly the diagnosis, and he knows that the medicine is himself, and he never fails. The first argument of grace is that the sick are the ones who are in need of a physician. It is the argument of the removal of a mortal disease. The Pharisees didn't get that because they didn't believe themselves to have that mortal disease. Do you? And do you see your need? of this great physician. The second argument of grace is an argument from Scripture. There in verse 13, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn, by the way, is a rabbinic saying, a rabbinic phrase. It means go study your Bible, learn, you should have known this. And so he quotes to them from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You Pharisees are so wrapped up in all that is outward, you have forgotten the mercy that comes from the heart. You need to learn a lesson in compassion. Why am I eating with these that are social outcasts? It's because they have a mortal wound. It's because they are in need of a physician. It is because I have come to manifest compassion. And in quoting from Hosea 6.6, He would recall to them the entire context of that marvelous prophet in which Gomer, the wife of Hosea, the harlot, had walked away from her loving husband into harlotry and Hosea, patterning his own heart after the infinite and eternal compassion of God, goes after her to recover her and redeem her unto himself. And so Jesus is saying, God's eternal faithfulness, mercy, and compassion is shown when I eat with sinners and with outcasts. That's the second argument of grace. It's the argument of Scripture. And then he gives a third argument of grace, and that is the argument from Jesus' own mission. We see it at the end of verse 13, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I have a heart that is greater than even Hosea's heart. The Pharisees' hearts were righteous in their own eyes. They attempted to establish their own righteousness, but God's kingdom is for the spiritually sick. I have come for sinners. Now, what if I called Dr. Oates or Dr. Roberts, and I said, "Um, Doctor, would you send me some medicine And they say, well, why do you need medicine? Are you sick? Well, I just want you to send me some medicine. Well, they say, well, but but what's wrong with you? Well, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not sick. I just want you to send medicine. What would they say to me? They would say, I don't have any time for this. I have sick people in my office. And they would hang up the phone. 
Well, don't you see the Pharisees, they believe that they need medicine. They're very religious, but they don't believe they're sick. They don't believe that they're dying or dead. They don't believe that they need a great physician. And so in these great arguments, the Lord Jesus is unpacking for them and for us the arguments of grace so that we might really begin to understand the desperate need that we have of the sovereign, free grace of God in Christ. Do you see that? Do you know that? Do you understand that? But there's something else to see in this passage. I want you also to see the joy of grace. The joy of grace. Now, what is the connection between what we have just read and what follows beginning in verse 14? Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we need what, what, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, the connection is simply this, that while the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting, Jesus and his disciples are feasting. And so there's incongruity. Why are your disciples feasting while we mourn? Why are you glad while we are sad? Why are you feasting while we are fasting? There was only one required fast in the Old Testament, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Pharisees being what they were, they wanted to fast on all kinds of occasions and were not satisfied unless you fast along with them. Jesus then answers this question in a variety of ways. He begins in verse 15 by saying, well, my disciples are not fasting because they have me. Look at it, verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so the Lord Jesus, utilizing again the theme of the the joy of a wedding, speaks of the fact that he is with them. Why would they fast? The time is coming in which he will be taken away. That's a reference to the cross. And for this short period of time until the resurrection... They also will mourn, and they also will feel the need of fasting. But now the bridegroom is with them. Why then should they fast? John's disciples were oriented toward preparation. Jesus' disciples live in the joy of the inbreaking of the time of salvation. They have a foretaste of the banquet that is to come. And so, essentially what John's disciples are asking Jesus is, why do you emphasize the internal instead of the external? And Jesus gives a couple of illustrations. Take, for example, he says, the sewing of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If the cloth is washed, the patch will shrink and the whole garment becomes useless. His point, Jesus' new gospel cannot be attached to the old Pharisaism. Or, if you pour new wine into old wineskins, when the new wine begins to ferment, it will burst the old wineskins. The point, Phariseeism cannot contain the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus saying to you and me here? He is saying, when grace comes, when the call comes into your life, when you respond to the grace of God by faith, when you understand that you're sick, so sick that you need the divine physician to heal you, then grace brings joy. It trounces legalism. It destroys 
any hope of personal merit so that we find our joy in the merit of Christ alone. It brings hope to sinners. And so when a sinner says to me, but I have many sins, Pastor, you just can't know. Yes, I can know. I have a sinful heart as well, and Jesus' grace is greater than your sin. When someone says to me, my case is beyond a physician's skill, you are the very kind that he came to save. People who are dying, indeed, who are dead in trespasses and sins. I am a wretch without sovereign grace. From the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, there is no soundness in me, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores apart from the grace of God in the gospel. And Jesus says that gospel has now come, and you should not fast but feast. You come to the banquet of great joy because of the merit of Jesus Christ that is provided for you. Joy, my friends. Jesus didn't come for righteous people. That's the joy. He didn't come for righteous people. If you think you're righteous, you're lost. And if you continue to think that you're righteous in yourself, you're lost forever. No joy there. There is joy in recognizing that you do not have righteousness of your own and finding all of your righteousness in Christ and in Christ only. Calvin put it this way, to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of wickedness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disfiguring vices. Those are the ones that Jesus came to save. Who then among us is exempt. I know that as I read what Calvin wrote, I am not exempt. Oh, my friend, I am dead needing quickening. I am guilty and condemned in myself in need of justification. I'm polluted needing washing. I'm full of wickedness. I cannot rescue myself. I am completely disgusting in my vices apart from the sovereign free grace of God And Christ has come, and grace has come, and righteousness has come, and that is the joy of the kingdom of God. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. This is the abiding joy of the kingdom of God. This is the joy of grace. Now, as we have looked at this text this morning, we've seen four things. We have, first of all, seen the call of grace. We have, secondly, seen the fellowship of grace. Thirdly, we have seen the arguments of grace. And fourthly, the joy of grace. Now, finally, I would bring to you the lessons of grace. And how many are there? There's a zillion of them. But I'm bringing three. Let me bring these three lessons of grace as we think upon this passage this morning. The first lesson of grace is this. My friend, are you called? Has God sovereignly, graciously, lovingly, powerfully, irresistibly called you unto himself? Are you called? You look to Christ because Christ looked to you. You love Jesus because he first loved you. Therefore, if you are called, live as those who are called by the grace 
of God. Understand the significance of calling for all of life. If he called you, he will keep you. And if he keeps you, live as one who is called. Let's look at two verses, two passages. Turn in John's Gospel to chapter 21. At the end of John's Gospel, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the disciples, in verses 19 through 22, He's been speaking to Peter. In verse 19, he says, This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, Follow me. Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? This is John's opaque way of referencing himself. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Here's my plan for you, Peter. You're going to die. Follow me. But I'm concerned about this guy over here. What about his life? Is his life going to be different than mine? Jesus says, don't complicate your life by worrying and concern over this man's life. That's in my hands. Twice he says to Peter, you follow me. Now, if you are called by God, that call continues to be extended in your life, and that call is to follow Jesus. Are you following? Do you know of some area in your life in which you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are not living as one who is called of God. But let me give you this encouragement as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in which the Apostle Paul has mentioned calling already twice in these opening verses. But I especially have in mind 1 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. He speaks of the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 7. That's the return of Jesus. And he says in verse 8, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The encouragement that comes is if God has called you, you remain called. If he has brought you to himself, he will not turn you away. If he has given to you saving faith and all of the benefits that come from his sovereign work on the cross and in his resurrection, you will remain his until Jesus Christ returns and you have the promise that you remain in fellowship with him and that you will be found guiltless in the day when Jesus Christ returns. Are you called? Then be encouraged by the fact that if he called you, He will never send you back. But that that call continues to draw all the way through time into eternity. That's the call he extended to Matthew. That's the call he extended to the Christians in Corinth. That's the call that is extended to God's people here today. Therefore, therefore, follow him. A second lesson of grace is this.
Is Jesus compassionate towards sinners? Oh, yes, he's compassionate towards sinners. We see in this text that he came to Matthew. Matthew did not come to him. He comes to us. He moves toward us in Christ because, again, the good news of the gospel is the grace of God in Christ is for sinners. Have we been called? Has he shown us compassion? Do we therefore know something of the greatness of his merciful character in our own lives? Here in Matthew, he called a man that people would least expect to have been saved and called. That's what he does in his great sovereign free grace. If that is the case, then there's hope for the sinner here, no matter who or she, he or she may be. No matter what you have done, no matter how deep the sin, no matter how great the rebellion, Jesus shows himself to be a savior of those who know themselves to be sinners indeed. And if that is the case also, that he is, that he is caring and compassionate towards sinners, then I also need to be caring and compassionate toward my fellow sinners. And there is no room for haughtiness toward my fellow sinners. And let me bring you a third and final lesson of grace. The third and final lesson of grace is that there is hope and joy for you who are here today who don't feel good enough. There is hope and joy for you who don't feel good enough. Oh, I know to whom I speak. I speak to my own heart. You don't feel good enough. You just don't feel worthy. A lot of your life is lived that way. You're so concentrating on the fact that you don't feel good enough, you don't feel worthy. Do you know that that can become a kind of pride? I'm not worthy, and so I'm not coming to Jesus. Jesus says, you are unworthy, come. I'm a believer, but I'm not really worthy to fellowship with him, and so I'm not going to, to pray about these things. He wouldn't want me to come into his presence with these things. I'm just not worthy. You're worthy in Christ. Come. I just don't feel worthy. It can become a kind of pride that keeps you away from the Savior. It becomes, it becomes one of those hindrances to coming to Jesus. D.A. Carson says it very plainly. The simple truth is that if you feel good enough for Jesus, he does not want you. Why? Because Christ didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. He rose from the dead for sinners. And so you're right. You're not good enough. All right? You're not good enough. Christ is. And so get your eyes off yourself and on Him. Stop wallowing in your corruption and recognize that your joy will never be found there but is found in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith, imputed to you by the sovereign free grace of God. Hope and joy comes to those today sitting here who just don't feel good enough. You aren't good enough. Christ is totally good enough, altogether perfect. 
And so we sang together, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. And I am so glad that he does. Amen.